In terms of what I was asked to, to walk everybody through in terms of the webinar today was an overview of the, the suite of clean farms programs that are delivered on behalf of the industry. So specifically within those programs, there's a, there's a host that are delivered and ultimately funded by oh, all of the members at a trade association level. So specifically, and I won't go through all of them, uh, the members of CropLife Canada and ultimately the members of Clean Farms uh, fund these various programs. So specifically, how we look at the, the industry stewardship's uh, life cycle, all the way from research and development, all the, through, all the way through to end of life programs are that there's various programs in place uh, throughout the, the life cycle of, a, in this case, a pesticide or, or a seed technology. Um, typically, how we run the programs internally within crop life is noted by the, the green boxes or the the activities that take place um, that aren't particularly the end of life product stewardship. And then the two programs at the end of a product's life cycle, specifically the container management or what you do with the empty pesticide containers or seed bags, as well as what you do with any unusable product uh, we use through the, or are managed through the clean farms program. And, and really what I want to discuss today is, is what those programs look like and how Ontario growers can participate in them if they aren't already doing so. So I think one of the, one of the components that I wanted to share with everybody right off the bat is a lot of these programs are, are evolutionary in nature. Um, in early days, a lot of these programs, the start of them, have been um, first started over the course of decades, or in some cases, over several decades ago. The first empty pesticide container collection programs were delivered nationally uh, starting in the late 80s. And then uh, thereafter, obsolete pesticide disposal programs were delivered in the, in the late 90s. And then over the past uh, decade, we've, we've added collectively other waste streams that, that fit from a strategic standpoint um, into the existing uh, infrastructure of, of core programs. Some of those being the addition of fertilizer containers, the addition of livestock medications into the obsolete pesticide disposal program, the addition of seed bags, and then lastly, in the last couple of years, the addition of, of bulk pesticide containers. So I'll walk through the various uh, programs that are at a fairly top level, and really my focus here is to give a little bit of background, but specifically how one actually participates in these, these various programs. So in terms of empty pesticide containers, we split the program into uh, two programs. The first one being uh, pesticide jugs, if you will, or less than 23 liter containers. As noted, that program uh, first started nationally in the, in the late 80s. It's focused specifically on commercial pesticides. So any domestic pesticides, they can go through alternative uh, household hazardous waste type collection programs that, that the vast majority of municipalities will offer in one form or another. Um, in Ontario, uh, all of the uh, containers are collected at participating ag retailer locations across the province. Um, in 2013, liquid fertilizer containers were added to the program. Uh, prior to that, a, a majority of them were, were coming into the program anyways, but they were formally included in, in 2013. In terms of some statistical 
uh, evidence. There's about 5 million containers that are collected annually across the country, coast to coast. Um, just in terms of the pesticide use uh, parameters, approximately 80% of those are, are collected in Western Canada with, with about 20% of, of them being collected in Eastern Canada. In Ontario, roughly, there's a about 600,000 containers collected on a on an annual basis and where that all works out to is about a 62% national return rate. So of all the pesticide containers shipped into the marketplace in a given year, 62% of those find their way back through the uh, through the recycling program. So specifically from a grower perspective, um, how do you participate in the program? So the first thing is ensure that the uh, pesticide containers are empty. You triple rinse them at the farm uh, after you uh, dump the product into your spray tank, uh, go through a, a triple rinsing process. And upon those containers being empty and triple rinsed, bring them back to your local ag retailer. There's approximately 200 container collection sites across the across the province. Um, just contact the local ag retail where, where the products were purchased from and they'll be able to provide you applicable program information. If they aren't a collection point, they can certainly uh, point you towards one that or an ag retail location that is. Um, in terms of once the containers are are collected or assembled at the at the ag retail collection site, typically between May and uh, April, excuse me, May and October of any given year, uh, a waste contractor will come pick the containers up at, at the ag retail location, typically um, uh, a number of times throughout the growing season. They're transported to a central processing facility where typically they're in some cases cleaned um, and then further processed and then ultimately where the where all the uh, plastic goes is it's it's sold to uh, a suite of approved recyclers that have a very specific environmental health and safety regime and ultimately that plastic is going into uh, various approved end uses um, typically right now a good a good majority of that product is is going into uh, field drainage tile as an example of a number of of uh, various approved end uses. Uh, so typically as that process goes, um, rinse your containers, bring them back to your ag retail from May through October, uh, then they're picked up by a waste company and uh, ultimately they're sent into the recycling uh, stream. The next program that uh, is offered is a, a return program for bulk containers. So Specifically, what we mean by bulk containers are they're non-deposit, one-way bulk containers. And I put a couple images into the slide deck to give an example. So typically what these are, these are barrels, drums, and or caged shuttles. Uh, one thing I would note is that what we call asset uh, containers, or these are the multi-trip containers that are typically filled at an ag retail location. They will be uh, transported out to the farm. The product is then um, pumped into a sprayer. Then that container goes back to the ag retail location to be filled again and, and then another subsequent farm visit. Those are not part of the program, but anything that's a one-way, one-and-done, in, in essence, is, um, is part of this program. The program, in terms of its history, was piloted in Western Canada a couple years ago, and, and uh, based on the, the experience of those programs, uh, it was expanded into Eastern Canada last year, and, and uh, it'll be offered again this year. So in terms of how one actually participates in that program, uh, make sure you have the right containers, first and foremost. 
uh, non-asset containers or one-way drums and totes, um, return them to the ag retail location that they were purchased from. They do not need to be rinsed as long as they're appropriately, have the appropriate bungs and, and uh, caps on so that there's no issue of, of spills or contamination. Um, upon them being returned to the ag retail, the waste contractor will pick those uh, drums and totes up. They will be returned to a central distribution facility where they're typically uh, cleaned and rinsed and further processed. And in the same vein as the less than 23 liter, liter pesticide containers, uh, they're sent to various recyclers uh, across North America for uh, use in a whole suite of, of uh, recycled product. The next program that I wanted to make note of is the seed and pesticide bag collection. So this is a program that first started in Atlantic Canada um, almost 10 years ago. Uh, and really what it was focused on initially was, was uh, pesticide fungicide bags, predominantly um, for potato-based fungicides, obviously Prince Edward Island and, and other parts of Atlantic Canada. Um, over the course of time, that program expanded to include uh, seed bags and tote sacks. So as it operates right now, um, there's essentially three types of, of bags that uh, will be accepted into the program. Uh, Multi-wall paper fungicide bags, or insecticide bags in some cases. Uh, seed bags, typically these in Ontario, we're gonna be uh, paper bags where corn, soybeans, small grains are going to be um, uh, in. Uh, typically, in addition to that, they will take in tote sacks. So those are the multi-woven uh, tote sacks, typically in 500 or 1,000 kilo bags that uh, typically bulk wheat or soybeans are, are contained in. In terms of participating, a uh, fairly simple process. Just make sure the bags are empty. They're well shaken um, to make sure that all the product, even in the corners of the bags, are, are removed. Um, they are then um, uh, can be placed into large plastic bags that participating ag retailers uh, will provide to growers free of charge. Some of the images that we have here are um, are what those bags look like. And then uh, once the bags are filled, they can be returned to a participating ag retailer location. Uh, ultimately, these bags go through a dip, different waste stream. Um, Upon being returned to a to the ag retail location that participates in the collection program, they are uh, transported by a hazardous waste company and they're actually sent for uh, incineration. The last program that I wanted to make note of from a grower participation standpoint is the obsolete pesticide and livestock medication collection program. And, and this program has been in existence for, um, this will be its 20th year across the country. It's focused on ensuring that uh, obsolete pesticides and, and uh, more recently obsolete livestock medications are safely collected and disposed of. And really what, what this program focuses on is um, growers ultimately end up with obsolete pesticide for a suite of reasons. Uh, they may have changed crops, the product's registration may have been withdrawn, they may have um, purchased or inherited a property where there was product uh, left in a shed from either a, a parent or a grandparent or a property owner um, that owned the property previous to them, a whole suite of, of um, 
of of reasons and ultimately on as as industry we want to ensure that if there are products um, that are no longer needed that there's a uh, a safe easy way to responsibly dispose of them and this is where this program comes into effect so typically the program is delivered in each region of the country each province if you will every three years uh, it's an ag retail based collection where basically there's a uh, several dozen ag retails that will participate in the program where a hazardous waste company will um, have staff at the site for a specific period of time where local farmers can bring in any obsolete pesticide or livestock medication and ensure that it's safely disposed of. The program is entirely free to participate. There's a no questions asked policy. Um, one thing I would note is that the program is delivered every three years. So the next program is scheduled to be run in Ontario in the fall of 2019. So nothing in 2018, but there will be a program in 2019. If you have obsolete pesticides that you want to ensure that they're safely disposed of, um, in the interim, we encourage that they get put in a designated pesticide storage area that uh, they be identified as no longer for use or, or obsolete and contact your local ag retailer in the summer of 2019 and they'll be able to provide you with specific information in terms of the list of collection sites and the specific dates that the program will be offered. Um, typically it takes place in, in late September uh, through October um, across the province. And again, uh, this is a great program. You can see from some of the visuals that we put up here, we, we do get in some very, very old product. The last program that was delivered in Ontario um, in 2016, uh, over 100,000 kilos of obsolete pesticides were returned and, and safely disposed of. And that's a, that's a really good example of the level of environmental commitment to stewardship that Ontario growers have. So those are the four programs that I wanted to run through on the on the webinar today. Ultimately, what I would encourage everybody to do is if they would like more information, feel free to contact myself and I will uh, provide any information that they have. Uh, alternatively, visit either the Crop Life Canada website, www.croplife.ca, or the Clean Farms web website, www.cleanfarms, all one word, .ca, and there's a whole host of information um, and way more depth than I got into today specifically around um, the programs, some key statistics, and a, uh, and a listing of all the, the participating uh, sites. At a local level, I would encourage you to contact your local ag retailer. They'll be very aware of these programs. They're very supportive of, of the suite of industry programs that I just walked through, and, and they'll be able to provide you with a great deal of information um, at a local level. So that's everything I had uh, to discuss today. So I will, uh, I will turn it back over to uh, the administrator. Very good. Um, I will also assume that you can hear me. And so what I'd like to do for the next 20, 25 minutes is just to do two things. One, give a brief primer on wheat crop competition just to get the the juices flowing and and comfortable and uh, what we're about to do and then uh, focus more on some of the production limiting challenges that occurred in the 2017 season 
and how we can address them in the 2018 season and then take any questions at that point. So start off with some you know, weed competition 101, some fundamental uh, information that, that most of us know, but it never just hurts to have that, that refresher. And you know, point number one, pretty obvious point, is that the greater population density of weeds we have, the greater impact it's gonna have on yield loss. So here's a pretty typical uh, graph depicting uh, three different densities of palmer amaranth competing with soybeans. And, and as you have more palmer amaranth, uh, you incur more yield loss if they're not controlled. And so you might look at that and say more outstanding research from the University of uh, No Kidding, uh, but it is important to keep that in mind from an from a aspirational goal perspective of, we wanna strive to minimize the amount of weed seed returning to the soil. Because if we do that over the long term, there, there's two things that it accomplishes. Number one, uh, if we have adverse weather and we don't get great activation of herbicides, uh, the impact isn't as great because we don't have as many weeds there. And then secondly, from a resistance management perspective, you have less weed seeds uh, recruiting in the soil. You have a less likelihood that uh, those weeds will be um, selected for herbicide resistance. So that's you know very fundamental. The second kind of critical component of weed crop competition is the idea that weeds that emerge before the crop have the greatest impact on yield. And so if we allow weeds to get up before our crop gets up, that will cause the greatest amounts of yield loss. And conversely, if we get weeds to emerge much later after crop emergence, uh, they can in some cases have very little impact on crop yields. So, you know, one is reducing overall weed pressure. Second is creating a management system in which we generally tend to emerge later. And so uh, with those two ideas in place, uh, the research in Ontario has shown uh, two guidelines for soybeans and corn. One is, is if we keep soybeans weed free from emergence to the third trifoliate stage, we're going to minimize yield losses if we keep it weed-free to both the fourth, fifth trifoliate stage, we're also going to minimize seed return. Uh, and then in corn, if we keep uh, corn weed-free from emergence to the eighth leafover stage, we're going to minimize yield loss and also weed seed return to the soil. So there's your three-minute weed uh, science 101 fundamentals of weed crop competition. Uh, and, and how they should always be in our mind from, in terms of developing a weed management plan. So let's focus on kind of specific scenarios. And we're going to focus uh, the majority of this webinar to pre-plant weed management and soybeans simply because uh, if we look at the past growing season, the, the majority of production limiting issue uh, around weeds occurred in soybeans. So when I talk to producers uh, across the province, there's kind of two methods of managing weeds prior to planting soybeans. Uh, the first is, um, you know, burn down herbicide application, usually in no-till or minimum-till environments, and then planting after uh, the pre-plant herbicide burn down in a perfect world. And then you have a cohort uh, that uh, use vertical tillage or tillage to manage corn stock residue, uh, and then also that's accomplishing some level of weed control and then planting after that tillage pass. Uh, and aren't necessarily doing a herbicide burn down, uh, focusing uh, as tillage as a primary mechanism to 
control weeds, right? So those are kind of the two camps, right? Herbicide burn down, planting, uh, tillage, and then planting. And so if we focus on our first kind of production limiting problem from uh, not only 2017, but previous to that, uh, it's around glyphosate resistant Canada fleabane. And so, you know, kind of if we look out into fields around this time of year, these are two, the next two pictures are from you know, two different fields at this time of year. Uh, here's some Canada fleabane rosettes. They're about one inch in diameter, two inches in diameter. Uh, if weather was to warm up, uh, these would get large in, in a, quite a hurry. And then here's another example of a field shot where uh, smaller rosettes, right, less than tuny size, but uh, a high population density. So regardless of either field scenario, we're kind of violating all fundamentals of weed crop competition fun fundamentals in terms of we have uh, weeds emerging prior to uh, the crop being in the ground and, and, and clearly before crop emergence. And in this particular case, we got a, a high density of Canada fleabane. And if we are unsuccessful at managing the, this particular weed species prior to planting the soybean crop, uh, you can end up with a field like this. So this is a field taken, a field shot taken three years ago where um, fleabane was not adequately controlled prior to planting soybeans. And when you have fleabane up with a, with a soybean crop that has emerged, there is effectively no options to adequately control it other than going down the extend soybean route, which is uh, uh, soybean varieties that are tolerant to herbicides, uh, dicamba and glyphosate, which we'll talk about in a bit. So clearly pre-plant weed management is you know, important in this scenario for this particular weed. So how do we, you know, what are the options to manage it? So if we look at the uh, herbicide end, right, we're going in and spraying a burn down herbicide prior to planting soybeans what has the good research out of the University of Guelph Ridgetown campus by Dr. Peter Sikamichon, right? And so this is work that was done with Peter along with his graduate student, Christopher Budd, where they had the most success of controlling glyphosate resistant Canada fleabane uh, with the combination of Aragon, Sencor at about uh, 220 grams per acre, 216 grams per acre plus merge with, uh, and that was tank mix with, with glyphosate. So you see in this situation with that uh, burn down program on the left-hand side there, you're getting very good control of glyphosate resistant cannabis fleabane compared to everything around it. Now, of course, this allows you to plant uh, Roundup Ready soybeans, non-GMO soybeans. Um, you know, it is an option if you don't want to go down the extend route. Now, if you want to go down the extend route, there's, there's maybe some circumstances where you would want to do that. So again, Roundup Ready to extend soybeans, um, that means the varieties of soybeans are tolerant to both dicamba and glyphosate, dicamba being a very effective active ingredient on glyphosate-resistant Canada fleabane. And so again, here's a field shot from one of Dr. Peter Sikama's trials. And uh, on the left-hand side, you see the high rate of uh, Ingenia or Extendamax. So those are two trade names with the active ingredient dicamba. It's a pre-plant application. And when you compare it to the unsprayed strip on the right, uh, it's, it's done very well at managing that particular weed. Um, the, so 
Where you would maybe opt for this uh, production system is in high density environments. So here's an example of a field where we were doing some research trials, uh, Francois Tardif, Clarence Watton and myself, where Canada fleabane was managed uh, adequately prior to uh, soybean emergence, but there was a late flush, a late germination of Canada fleabane and there is virtually no way to control it. If you had planted uh, extend soybeans here, you could use dicamba to manage it. Of course, the concern with uh, post-emergent dicamba applications, as we've uh, made note of in the US, is the risk of off-target drift to neighboring sensitive crops, such as uh, the, the image you're seeing here, which is uh, you know, non-extend soybeans. So that's just a reminder to, to keep an eye on all the directions on the label uh, that restrict wind speeds and travel speeds and nozzle selection and, and temperature so that we minimize off-target drift of dicamba. So it's just a consideration. So in soybeans, those are kind of your options for managing glyphosate-resistant Canada fleabane. If we go back to uh, our two methods of managing weeds prior to planting soybeans, that handles the, you know, the herbicide end. Um, but what if you're a person that uh, manages residue with tillage, also trying to manage weeds, would, would vertical tillage adequately control Canada fleabane? And so we have looked at that at field levels. And, and the short answer is it kind of depends, again, what the population density is. So if we're looking at this photo here, relatively low population density of fleabane, uh, tillage has a good uh, opportunity to do a, a pretty good job. But if we're looking at uh, this image here, this very high population density of Canada fleabane, tillage might, might struggle to eliminate 100% of the stand. And here are some field observations, right? Uh, this first image is when we ran a vertical tillage unit through very light sandy soil. The population density was so high even those are even though those are very small fleabane seedlings, those fleabane seedlings had very um, very prominent fibrous roots, and those fibrous roots were very good at holding on to soil. And so we'd have these. We were able to take out probably 95, 96 percent of the population of Canada fleabane, but what was left over were these these clumps, these mats of of seedlings and it still wasn't adequate enough. We still had a, a good amount of Canada fleabane left prior to planting. So in these types of environments, you know, that's where I think if we're dealing with Canada fleabane, specifically some of these glyphosate resistant weeds, and we're typically relying on, on tillage, in these situations, it would be worthwhile to consider a pre-plant herbicide application, such as a, a glyphosate, Aragon, Sencor merge prior to tillage, then doing tillage um, after that to manage residue to even maybe kill uh, the odd fleabane seedling not killed by that pre-plant application and then planting. So just this idea that um, when you're in high density environments, now we're really getting to what integrated weed management is, high population densities of a resistant species what we've found is not one single method of, of control is adequate. We need to combine methods. So in this case, combining uh, the herbicide portion with tillage portion 
And then uh, also down the road, we're looking at, at cover crops and how they play a role in that because they, they are helpful. So here's some of the questions then that come around uh, pre-plant weed management. So uh, from 2017, so one of the big questions was, it was a wet spring. There was definitely, you get in a mindset of let's get the seed in the ground, let's plant first. And sometimes didn't get the burn down applied uh, till after, you know, and before planting. So in a perfect world, we apply a herbicide and a pre-plant burn down before planting. Uh, sometimes life throws us a curveball, and now we're we're after planting. So the the question that often came up is, can I do it after planting? Number one, or you get a different take on that. Uh, I, I tilled first, I planted second. Uh, but then I noticed some of the weeds had survived the tillage pass. So can I apply burn down post planting? And if I can, like how late can I, can I be on that? And so keep in mind, most herbicide labels uh, for burn down herbicides kind of restrict applications after three days past planting. And there's, there's probably some good reason for that. And what I want to show you is a series of, pictures from a field trial this past year where we looked at timing of uh, pre-plant and you know, post-plant herbicides. And so if you plant soybeans, let's say mid-May, late May, and have pretty good weather, uh, as we did last spring, we heated up for us, within three days after planting, uh, the soybean looks like what you see on the screen here. So uh, the radical is, is, is formed, it's about a centimeter long and uh, it's off to the races and so this is usually the cutoff for most herbicides um, when we get to six days after planting now that that soybean plant is now formed a hypocotyl it's slowly making its way to the surface and if we were to scratch the surface uh, we will notice that that little hypocotyl is starting to, to hook through and this image here is probably one of the main reasons why you see a lot of herbicides restricting application beyond three days after planting. It's because the herbicides, one, have very little soil residual activity, but they have contact control, and many of them contact control on broadleaf species. And the closer that soybean plant is getting to the surface, the more likely it can come in contact with that herbicide and cause crop injury. So once we get beyond nine days after planting, then, uh, you know, nine days after planting, good Lord, the, the soybeans have poked through, they're, they're, they're up. So clearly we're out of the window here. Right? So going back to the, the question that was asked a lot this past season in terms of understanding that uh, some level of pre-plant weed control is important to make sure the crop is coming up in a weed-free environment maybe missing that window and wanting to do it after planting, you know, the real, the real risk is that most burned on herbicides restrict applications past three days after planting. And so there is definitely an increased risk of crop injury once you get beyond uh, three days after planting. You saw that image of soybean at six days after planting, the hypocotyl is close to the surface. Uh, so it's much, much riskier to get as what we see here, um, some 2,4-D injury uh, on soybean uh, because of a, a late application pre-plant. So it all boils down to kind of what is the risk, right? If I have a high population density of weeds that are only controlled by a particular herbicide, 
um, I may be more inclined to, to risk application, even if I'm beyond three days after planting. But if I have a low population density of weeds, uh, maybe that risk uh, is not worth it. Uh, so, you know, it is, it is a challenge. The, the, the ultimate um, point that I want to remind people in the audience of is, is the importance of, of trying to get all these activities done prior to planting. And I recognize that, that you know, that's largely dictated by time management and weather. But the more we can strive to do that, the better. And then if we get ourselves in the window where we've planted and now we're looking to spray, you want to, again, try and do it before three days after planting, ideally. Um, but, you know, if you slip beyond that, uh, there's probably some products that are worth taking a risk on if you have high weed densities. All right. So the last thing I want to round up with just to finish off this webinar is um, how do I prove consistency of weed control with herbicides, especially glyphosate. So keep in mind where I'm coming from on this is usually in the fall, bags of uh, weed seeds show up at the Department of Plant Agriculture at the University of Guelph for Dr. Francois Tardif to, to test for herbicide resistance because uh, the weeds have not been adequately controlled. And in some cases, there's two species common lambs quarters, which is you know, the most abundant species in Ontario, and then common ragweed. Those are two species where when we test for herbicide resistant, specifically lambs quarters, very few of them are actually resistant to any herbicide. So in other words, you know, the poor control can't be explained by herbicide resistance, rather it has to do with um, some other factor. And so I want to kind of bring home this point, which is based on work that again has been supported by Grain Farmers of Ontario, done by the University of Guelph Ridgetown campus, is when they uh, looked at timing of weed control in corn and soybeans, uh, when using a product like glyphosate to control weeds, you do get over 90% control most consistently uh, when weeds are smaller than four inches tall. So I have the coffee cup in there because it's four inches tall, it's 10 centimeters tall. So we should always strive to control weeds prior to that stage. Because if we don't do that, um, you know, here's an example uh, of a field where lamb's quarters was inadequately controlled. Uh, we've unfortunately seen this a fair amount over the last five years. There's usually some common themes, and those common themes are number one, uh, most plants are taller than three inches. Uh, the rate of glyphosate is, is often uh, low, and they're often sprayed in the evening. So spraying in the evening does one of two things. The ambient air temperature is lower and herbicides tend to not work as well when air temperatures are lower. And secondly, the leaves of lamb's quarters are, are usually pointing up and are more difficult to wet. Um, and when we allow, so you know, weed staging is, a, is often a commonality in performance issues. And that same study by Peter Sikkim and his colleagues shows that when weeds get taller than 10 centimeters, uh, you require anywhere from 43 to 114% more glyphosate to achieve the same level of control uh, than when they were applied at 10 centimeters or, or smaller. So in other words, you, you let weeds get over 10 centimeters tall and you almost need twice the amount of product to control them. So I guess it would be easy for me to sit here and say, we need to control weeds when they're small. 
Uh, it's kind of, again, obvious, but here's often what happens. Uh, this, these next three images are kind of one of the challenges that producers might face uh, when timing herbicide applications and why I'm going to finish off by advocating uh, to consider using more pre-emergent soil applied herbicides in both uh, soybeans and corn. So I'm looking at a lamb's quarters here beside a uh, quarter. Uh, there was no pun intended with that image, but regardless, the weed is eight, eight leaf uh, stage or less. So kind of the maximum stage for, for herbicide application. So I might look at that and say, perfect, awesome timing for, for my herbicide application. But then I start looking around that field and I see another big lamb's quarters there at kind of maximum label stage, but just above it is a darn little cotyledon that's just poked through. And to the left of it's one that's kind of just come up in the last three days, it's maybe at the two four leaf stage. So then I get in that mindset of, well, if I'm seeing a few cotyledons, maybe I'll wait a little bit longer because I'm using glyphosate and glyphosate doesn't control unemerged weeds. So if I maybe let a few more weeds get up, maybe I can just, I, I want to get away with one application. I don't want to have to follow up. And that's an easy mindset. It's an understandable mindset. The challenge becomes is as, as you maybe delay three, four, five more days, uh, lamb's quarters with a bit of heat can get big in a hurry. And so now you've let more weeds get up. You can target more weeds with that shot, but some of them are going to be quite large and there's a high probability of failure. And so the inclusion of soil applied herbicides in corn and soybeans, it helps wipe out those early emergers and leaves ones that germinate later in the season to become up more consistent and are easily more easily targeted uh, with glyphosate at a consistent stage. And so there's kind of two studies that have, you know, there's plenty of studies that have looked at this and seen the benefits of soil applied herbicide. One was done over 10 years ago, around 10 years ago in the U.S. And, and West Hovland and his colleagues found that using a soil applied herbicide in soybeans improved lamb's quarters control with glyphosate by over 30%. Again, the soil applied herbicide is taking away that early flush of lamb's quarters. The later emerging lamb's quarters kind of consistently come up at the same time, and then you can target them at a reasonable stage, as opposed to when you don't include the soil applied herbicide, you get a range of staging from very small to very large, and that's where you get inconsistency. And then more recently, uh, a paper in the U.S. showed that pre-herbicide use reduced the number of in-crop weeds exposed to post-glyphosate. So lower population of density of weeds emerging post-emergent. And therefore, their conclusion was it should be considered a strategy for resistant weed management. Makes sense, right? You've taken care of a good chunk of those weeds pre-emergent. You have fewer emerging in-crop and fewer that are exposed to a post uh, application of glyphosate. So a little lower selection pressure there. So a couple of things to keep in mind as we wrap up this webinar. Um, as it relates to weed management, there's a couple of production limiting weeds, specifically glyphosate resistant Canada fleabane and lamb's quarters that can be early emergers. And in the case of fleabane, usually up prior to planting. There's really no options for fleabane prior to planting to control it. So the focus should be on, on managing it prior to planting and to kind of minimize the inconsistency of control of weeds like lamb's quarters, uh, we should be looking at using uh, pre-emerged herbicides to control it. And, you know, 
lastly, I realize there's a lot of products out there, tons of different trade names. It's easy to get lost in the, the maze of products and weeds and herbicide resistant weeds. And that's why uh, Grain Farmers of Ontario, uh, along with myself and my colleagues, Tracy Bowdy and Albert Tinida, put together the Pest Manager app. So that is a tool where producers can go in, um, look up, in the case of weeds, up to 10 different weed species in a field. You can mark them as um, you think they're herbicide resistant. And it's going to go through the database that's largely generated by public data uh, to look at management options for those um, particular species and one of the, the things that we just added on to that tool for the 2018 season is um, now when you either open or open up the app for for the first time well not the first time when you open up the app or when you go into the information button and, and sync the app it's linked to a live database and so as new products come on the market so say a, a herbicide gets registered tomorrow we can put that into the database and it's accessible to you as, as a uh, grower and agronomist. So you have access to that information as it's put into the database, as opposed to having to wait, um, you know, four months, six months. So that is the pest manager app. And then lastly, um, these are two resources that myself along with uh, Francois Tardif um, put together for the grain farmers of Ontario. Um, and if you reach out to me at that uh, email address above or that phone number, I can uh, get you in touch with those resources. So that is all for me. I will uh, hand the reins over and we can uh, answer any questions. That's great. Thanks, Mike. And we apologize for a bit of technical difficulties with our, our microphone. But uh, at this time, we'll like to uh, field some questions for Mike. Um, and then followed by that, we'll field questions from Russell. So if anyone has any additional questions, please feel free to chat, uh, type them in the chat box on the right hand side of your screen. Um, and then we can have those answered for you. So Megan McKimmy, uh, she's here with me. If you can direct those messages to her and she'll uh, she'll be able to, to answer them to Mike directly. Hey, Mike. Um, so we got a few coming in while you were presenting there. So I'll just read those off for you. Um, the first one is, uh, what should I do if I suspect that I have a resistant weed? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so uh, if you suspect you have a resistant weed, typically the best thing, like in a perfect world, we'll come up with a task where we can, uh, you know, take a picture of the weed and it tells us whether it's resistant or not. Like that would be a nice futuristic thinking. But right now, uh, what happens is you'd let that weed get to maturity. You would collect seed. And then Dr. Francois Tardif's lab at the University of Guelph um, we'll take any seed that comes in and uh, screen it for uh, herbicide resistance. And he does that um, service for free. So he's been doing that for 20 years. And, and this year we just, um, I think he just finished doing about 30 different um, specimens that came in. Great. Um, I'm, I think you sort of answered the last question I had in there for you in that um, reply there, but it was just a question about um, where to send suspected uh, resistant weed seeds. So I think you went over that a little more. I don't know if there's more that you would like to touch on that. 
No, it's pretty straightforward. If it's like, and we can provide an address. Well, there's the addresses in the guide do we control of the exact place, but if it's just sent to the University of Guelph care of um, Francois Tardif and, and he'll test it. Great. Um, I think that's all we have for you there, Mike. Um, we do have one que question, sorry, for Russell um, that came in during his presentation. So um, if he's still there, I'll just ask the question and then we can, um, I guess, just unmute Russell so he can talk. So Russell, your question that came in was, uh, what happens if farmers don't rinse, triple rinse containers prior to collection at retail? In terms of if, if the jugs are unrinsed, I'll, I'll just maybe be clear because there's two veins here. If it's less than 23 liter jugs, so like the 10 liter jugs are somewhat equivalent, the ag retailer will not accept them uh, for recycling. They have to be triple rinsed. So that's, that's about as black and white as it gets. If they're not triple rinsed, the retail site will not accept them. If it's a drum and tote, they do not have to be rinsed. They need to be empty. But in some cases, or in many cases, it's quite difficult for a grower to effectively triple rinse a drum or a caged shuttle. In those cases, they just need to be empty. They don't need to be rinsed. So hopefully that's, uh, that's clear. Okay, so I think that's all the questions I saw come in on the chat box there. So I'm just gonna pass it back off to Mike here. Well, I wanna thank both of our speakers, Russ and, and Mike, for taking time to present on both some kind of timely topics that uh, are relevant to the upcoming growing season. And I think uh, to kind of just close here, the role of these webinars is really to try and provide information and resources that are really trying to time when that, that application would be done in the field or at the farm. So Grain Farmers of Ontario is really looking for added um, you know, input on our webinar series as we uh, look ahead. And uh, please check your emails for a questionnaire where we'll be really interested to hear your feedback on, on the webinar. Um, I know there were a little technical difficulties, but uh, in the future, we definitely will be working on that so that it's a seamless process from start to finish. So um, please sign up um, through for CC or CEU credits through the questionnaire as well. Um, that will come in your inbox shortly. And if you can see on the screen now, there is the sign in that we have on the slide um, for your credits as well. So this time I'd like to thank everyone for coming out and uh, stay posted for that final survey.